Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you very, very much. We're very flattered uh, when after all these years you, you keep attending. And some of you have been here all those years. Uh, we, we are very, very honored and love you very, very much. Welcome back to school. We wondered where you'd been all summer. We love you. We miss you when, when you're away. We are praying for you to have a very bright and very beautiful new year here together. Work hard. Learn much. Make all of your opportunities count. Do come in on time at night and do not come by our house to tell us. <laughs> this first semester of our brand new academic year, <clears throat> it should be duly noted, is going to be spiced up by a national presidential election. It is now the first week of September, the conventions are over, and we have nine weeks to the day to go. And we know only two things for certain. First, as Reinhold Niebuhr once said, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, and man's inclination toward injustice makes democracy necessary. Democracy is indeed, in that sense, still on trial. The civic loyalty and involvement of our people is its fundamental appeal and its only protection. So take your responsibility seriously, document and discuss the issues, and cast your vote if you are of age, and almost all of you are. Democracy only works if you do. That's the first thing we need to know in an election year. The other thing we need to know is that the humorists are going to have a heyday and indeed already are. Americans love to joke about their public figures. Thomas E. Dewey is said to have been the first presidential casualty of a political joke when, in the tough campaigning of 1948, someone said he looked like he had just fallen off a wedding cake. Now, you're all too young to have ever seen even pictures of Governor Dewey. But with his impeccable dark suits and his pencil-thin mustache, that is exactly how he looked. And people laughed. President John F. Kennedy may not have laughed, however, when Bob Hope kept snickering about his youth. Mr. Hope said that they served milk at Kennedy's first cabinet meeting, but it hadn't turned out well because they spent the next half hour just burping each other. Comedians are especially tough on politicians who move from unknown to nationally famous in an instant, like Senator Dan Quayle, for example. Now, regardless of your personal political persuasion, you have to admit that Senator Quayle has been the object of plenty of foul jokes lately. I'll just wait a minute for that to come. Mark Russell said that he didn't know whether the ticket of Bush and Quayle was the title of a hunting magazine or the name of an English pub. 
Nevertheless, Republicans are insisting that this ticket is the nation's best possible insurance against turning back the clock to those bitter days of the 60s when this country was torn apart over the war in Indiana. It was absolutely terrible, says Russell, the bombing of Indianapolis, the mining of harbors along the Ohio River, crawling through those jungles just outside of Gary in South Bend. But Jay Leno has defended Senator Quayle's military service devoutly. He said National Guardsmen are necessary, even though all they can do is sit around waiting for something to happen. And if that isn't training for the vice presidency, I don't know what is. <laughs> military service aside, many feel that Senator Quayle has distinct advantages over his Democratic counterpart, Senator Lloyd Benson. Someone said that at least two things Quayle has that Benson doesn't have are a hair blower and a discernible pulse. <laughs> Governor Dukakis's advisors wanted him to pick a running mate who was less exciting than himself, one not likely to overshadow him. Inside sources say it came down to either Senator Benson or Orville Redenbacher. As for the presidential candidates themselves, the comedians are not a whit more reverential. To them, Bush is a wimp and Dukakis a shrimp, with neither of them threatening Webster or Calhoun's reputations for oratory. Mark Russell says he doesn't think there is enough caffeine in the whole world to keep us awake through these next nine weeks. I'm not sure where that leaves us at BYU. Johnny Carson may have rendered the unkindest cut of them all when he said that Governor Dukakis was so confident he had already ordered phone book one to sit on in the Oval Office. <laughs> Carson quickly noted, however, that Dukakis has reason to be confident, because after one of Vice President Bush's recent stem-winding addresses, a police officer and the district attorney came up, drew a chalk outline around him, and said no one could approach the podium until they had identified the next of kin. Well, enough of this nonsense. There really is method in my madness this morning. In addition to the very important matter of a presidential election, and it is a very important matter, all joking aside, BYU is also saluting in something of a final way the bicentennial anniversary of the U.S. Constitution, which makes all of this possible. That document which William Gladstone once described as the most wonderful work ever produced in a single stroke by the brain and purpose of man. In fact, BYU is this very moment in the midst of producing a feature-length film on the Constitutional Convention, which will premiere on April 30, 1989, the bicentennial anniversary of President George Washington's inauguration as the first and arguably the greatest of this Republic's 40 presidents. Surely when the Lord speaks in the 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, of raising up wise men for the founding of this nation and the establishment of constitutional government, he must have been speaking first and foremost of George Washington. As unassuming as he was, Washington's impact on the new republic and on the framing of its government was greater than any other living man. His prestige as the victorious colonial general was immense, and his character, his very presence, inspired confidence. Note this language used by a journalist to describe Washington's arrival for that first inauguration. It is unclear to me whether the writer is describing royalty or deity. Quote, It is impossible to do justice 
to the scene exhibited on His Excellency's approach to this city. Innumerable multitudes thronged the shores, the wharves, and the shipping canals, waiting with anticipation His arrival. This great occasion arrested the public attention beyond all powers of description. All ranks and professions expressed their feelings in loud acclamations and with rapture hailed the arrival of the Father of their country. The scene was beyond any descriptive powers of the pen to do justice. How universal the sentiments of respect and veneration! All ranks exclaimed, Well, he deserves it all! These spontaneous expressions of gratitude are the highest reward that virtue can enjoys. Concluding, many persons were heard to say that day that they should now die contented, nothing being wanted to complete their happiness but this sight of the Savior of their new nation." Close quote. That was written two hundred years ago. Two hundred years later, the adulation is still nearly the same in both tone and content. Listen to this from a resolution passed by Congress and read by the President of the United States on the 200th anniversary of Washington's birth. Washington has come to personify the American Republic. He presided over the convention that framed our Constitution. The weight of his great name was the deciding factor in securing its adoption by the states. These results could never have been secured had it not been recognized that he would be its first president. And when we realize what it meant to take thirteen distracted colonies, impoverished, envious, and hostile, and weld them into an orderly federation under the authority of a central government, we then can form some estimate of the influence of this great man. We've seen many soldiers who have left behind them little but the memory of their conflicts. But the power to establish among a great people a form of self-government which the test of experience has shown will endure, that was bestowed upon Washington and upon Washington alone. His was the directing spirit without which there would have been no independence, no union, no constitution, no republic. His ways were the ways of truth. He built for eternity. His influence grows. His stature increases with the increasing years. In wisdom of action, in purity of character, he stands alone. We cannot yet estimate him. We can only indicate our reverence for him and thank the divine providence which sent him to serve and inspire his fellow men." Close quote. To co-opt a line from James Madison regarding those crucial times, George Washington decided forever the fate of Republican government. I've gone to some length this morning, both in the telling of the jokes and the tribute to Washington, especially the paying of the tribute, for at least two reasons. The first is because Washington is a genuine hero, and I've always wanted to make some public expression about the truly remarkable man I believe he was. I think we may never fully appreciate the magnitude of his impact upon those neonatal days of this nation when it could have so easily died a morning. The second reason is to draw all of this closer to home, to see what lessons Washington and his age have for us here 
at BYU at the start of another school year. To make that transition, I quote a recent BYU visitor, political pundit and journalistic gadfly Gary Wills. Said he, in an election year, we get the presidents we deserve. A great people is what you need for a great president. Washington was the greatest president because the people were at their most enlightened and alert. America right now is escapist, he continues. It wants to be soothed and told it doesn't have to pay or sacrifice or learn. Close quote. Now our jokes about candidates and campaigns leave a bit of a taste in our mouths. Can that possibly be true, that the people made Washington great, that they as well as he were at their most enlightened and alert? What does that mean for a university, especially Brigham Young University? I know it means that there can be no concession to escapism here, that we must not be soothed regarding sacrifice and learning. This university was born out of pioneer effort and anguish. We have a century-long tradition here of asking very much of those who come, and we're asking more and more every year. We intend to be a great people here. We intend to be one of the great universities of the world, a unique university whose light casts a very special gospel glow. But to do that, to become that, will require the commitment and loyalty of every single one of us. As Ben Franklin said at the fateful signing of the Declaration, which started it all, we must all hang together, or most assuredly we shall all hang separately. Still true, 212 years and two days later in Provo, Utah. Study diligently this year. You owe it to both your prophetic and political ancestors. The inestimable Thomas Jefferson said, If a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. That sounds very much like something revealed through our own Joseph Smith, that men and women cannot be saved in ignorance, and indeed they can be saved no faster than they gain knowledge. The Prophet Joseph, who shortly before his untimely death had determined to run for the office of President of the United States, said to all of us at BYU, Thy mind, O man and woman, if thou wilt lead a soul to salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens, and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Your minds will expand wider and wider until you can circumscribe the earth and the heavens and contemplate the mighty acts of Jehovah in all their variety and glory. This university is one of the mighty acts of Jehovah. We need to pledge to it our devout and loyal citizenship. Just say no to some pleasures and some distractions that take you away from our purpose here. Be a little more serious about the responsibilities you have. Stretch your minds and study and pray. Learn what great people must always learn. Seek wisdom out of the best books. Seek it by study and also by faith. 
Have appropriate fun at a great time in your life, but do not wish to be soothed in the rigor of a superior education. If we are to be all that God wants us to be, we must be at our most enlightened and alert. Brigham Young, who did not run for President of the United States, but for a brief moment did run from one, said, All the knowledge, wisdom, power, and glory that have been bestowed upon the nations of the earth from the days of Adam till now must be gathered home to Zion. Put forth your ability to learn as fast as you can and gather all the strength of mind and principle of faith you can possibly learn. Learn everything that the children of men know. Take pains and pride to rear your children so that the learning and education of the world may be theirs. So whether building countries or wilderness cabins, whether crossing the Delaware or the American desert, the founding fathers of this nation and the prophets of the Restoration knew that ignorance was the enemy, literally and profoundly a tool of the adversary. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake that evil one. If men would be great in goodness, President Young pleads, they must be intelligent. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. Of course, from the earliest beginnings of Western civilization, it has always been understood that knowledge had to be wedded to virtue. That mere information, untempered by qualities of justice and mercy and duty and compassion, would leave one simply a sophisticated barbarian in the end. Perhaps the greatest essayist ever to put pen to paper wrote, To compose our character is our duty, and to win not battles and provinces, but order and tranquility in our conduct. Our great and glorious masterpiece, he concludes, is to live appropriately. Now that's true whether one speaks of founding a republic or pursuing a university degree. And so is this from the brilliant Edmund Burke. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains on their appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon the will, a controlling power on the appetite, be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. That was said for all intents and purposes at the very hour this nation was being born. But it sounds like something someone would say today at BYU. I guess someone is saying it today. Who would that be? Joseph Smith? Or Brigham Young? Or Carl G. Mazur? Or Ezra Taft Benson? Or your freshman English teacher? All of them would say it. Ignorant, intemperate minds and behavior are the enemy to all true possibility, socially, intellectually, theologically. On the other hand, educated, disciplined, virtuous lives are the mark and hope of true godliness, 
true strength and freedom in this life and forever. We want you to feel a genuine sense of freedom at BYU that can come with an appreciation for the moral expectation and academic standards we have cultivated here for more than a hundred years. You are absolutely free, perfectly free, founding father George Washington free, to embrace the vision of this university as established by apostles and prophets and agreed upon by this community in common consent. We plead with you to seize fully and luxuriate in that opportunity. At BYU, you are free to become more than you can become at any other university in the world. But then you need to know that I am very biased. To compose our character is our duty. And to win not battles and provinces, but order and tranquility in our conduct. Our great and glorious masterpiece is to live appropriately. Such public and personal virtue was understood by the Founding Fathers to be the precondition for Republican government, the base upon which the structure of all government would be built. Such personal ideals as John Adams' virtuous citizen and Thomas Jefferson's moral sense were fundamental. Even the pessimistic James Madison said, I go on this great principle that the people will have virtue and intelligence to select men of virtue and wisdom. Is there no virtue among us? If there is not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical, no theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea indeed." Close quote. We have a code of honor at BYU. I invite you to join with us this year in discussing and enhancing it. I especially invite you to join with your BYUSA officers in reviewing this code, examining its tradition and meaning, re-examining its premises and its promises. If as a university community it is possible, as some are already helping us consider, if it's possible to write a yet better expression of what it means to be honorable here, we will do so. Inasmuch as this is your code, and is the broad basis upon which we form a moral community at BYU, it is important for you to understand it and to come to feel a sense of personal ownership for it. It means so much more than keeping your hair trimmed and well-groomed, more than dressing modestly and cleanly, though we expect that of every one of you. Surely all can understand why shorts and mini skirts and sloppy clothing and bizarre hair fashions are inappropriate at BYU. We want clean, modest, dignified appearance because we stand for something here. We're not a high school, and we're not just any university. At BYU, disciplined appearance represents an external aspect of a much more important and sacred inner discipline. So perhaps good grooming and modest, clean clothing are for BYU, as some religions even speak of symbolic sacraments, an outward sign of an inner grace. And that inner grace ought to be dealing with what Christ called the weightier matters of the law. These include honesty and chastity and integrity and service, the consequential issues of the honor code. Be honest in class and out. Be women and men of integrity with your teachers, your roommates, your bishops, yourselves. Don't cheat on an exam or steal a bicycle or a backpack and then wonder in slack-jawed amazement why a high-ranking government, government official commits espionage 
or a wealthy businessman goes to jail for embezzlement, how true it is that our destinies are decided by such small things and that an imprudence helped by some insignificant event as an acorn is nourished by a drop of rain may raise the trees on which perhaps we and others shall be crucified. Be clean in thought and word and deed. I told you last winter how strongly I feel about the symbols and sacraments of human intimacy. That intimacy is not yours to violate, and you do so at your very peril. It will never matter at BYU if we have immaculate buildings and manicured grounds, have clean clothing and well-groomed hair, if in our inner selves we are, as Christ once said to the hypocritical, like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and unclean. I started with George Bush and Michael Dukakis and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. That's pretty heady company for us here in Utah County. So let me end on a more local note with one brand of BYU citizenship, which may seem very much closer at hand. I beg our teachers' indulgence who will not mark you late for the slightly longer assembly. And we do conclude. I tell you this local story for its virtue, not for sensationalism or sentimentality. Last Tuesday, just one week ago, this very hour, this very moment, Stephen Eugene Blake was buried, 21-year-old sophomore, son of faculty member and friends Reed and Katie Dean Blake. Stephen was a BYU student, majoring in just about everything, one who believed in learning and virtue and sacrifice. He interrupted his university experience to serve a mission, as so many of you will do or have done, and he served with devotion and faith and immense enthusiasm. Two months to the day, two months to the day after returning from his mission, as Stephen was then preparing that very week to re-enter BYU, he witnessed a terrible accident at 225 West, 2230 North in Provo, Utah. Two employees of a local company were erecting a large metal sign near that street. Unfortunately, the mechanical boom they were operating came in contact with the mega-sized 7200-volt power line that runs along 2230 North. When that current flashed down that boom to the truck, the employee working near it was immediately knocked unconscious, falling on the electrified ground wire and perhaps other now highly charged metals that were nearby. The other employee, who had been operating the boom and had barely jumped to safety, called for medical assistance and then tried to free his colleague from the current. Driving by this scene was Mr. Enthusiasm himself, big, handsome, fun-loving, red-headed Stephen Blake, BYU student return missionary, citizen, a wrestler and football player in high school, Stephen, knowing that a human life was at stake but perhaps not realizing that life would be his own, stopped his car and joined the employee in trying to muscle his colleague away from contact with that penetrating voltage. In doing so, both men were immediately knocked unconscious, the employee falling away from the truck but Stephen falling forward, 
onto the wire and the highly charged soil near the rear of the truck. His body immediately began to convulse from the relentless electrical pulse surging through him. Another valiant Samaritan happening by, Dave Conley of Salt Lake City, then tried to rescue Stephen, but was immediately knocked back and fell unconscious, but fortunately free from the electrical field. Emergency medical and per medical personnel soon arrived, but they were unable to free Stephen from the current until after the power had finally been shut off. For 17 minutes, Stephen Blake, BYU student, return missionary, citizen, he lay with 7,200 volts pounding through his muscular frame. I sat in the Edgemont Fifth Ward Chapel one week ago, this very moment, and thought of Stephen, and thought of you, and thought of the beginning of a new school term for us and for him. A great people is what you need for a great university, to paraphrase Mr. Wills, not those who wish to escape or be soothed but a people willing to pay and sacrifice and learn. Stephen Blake's sacrifice somehow seems an immense one this morning as I look at all of you and look at his family who are here with us. And we could speak of what one should or should not do when a lethal electrical current is exposed and in force. That is not my purpose. My purpose today is to pay tribute to John Adams' favorite phrase, virtuous citizenship. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I tell this story this morning for its Christian significance on a campus where we pledge and profess Christian belief. I submit to you that our effort this year must be perhaps different in degree but not in kind from the effort that a ragged bunch of irregulars made during a winter at Valley Forge and that a beleaguered band of pioneer outcasts made in these valleys for the privilege of freedom and worship and growth and that Stephen Eugene Blake made on behalf of 70-year-old Johnny Wakamatsu whom to my knowledge he had never before met in his life. I submit to you that your devotion to your educational opportunity and the life of service which must follow it is to be different in degree but not in kind from that gift given by the Son of God himself, made for friend and foe alike, none of whom could possibly have comprehended the full meaning and majesty of the privilege he was providing them. In this academic year of presidential elections and bicentennial celebrations, I salute you, the students of Brigham Young University, who have chosen to educate your minds, to discipline your appetites, and to serve, indeed sacrifice for, your fellow men and women. God bless you for being the generation you are, fair as the moon, clear as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. God bless you for wanting to be at your most enlightened and alert.
for preparing to live as a great and glorious masterpiece. I pray for every blessing upon you this year as you strive to fill that full measure of your creation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.